talking with antitrust researcher Ron Knox about how the musical ecosystem can be saved. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we're sharing our opinions on four new album releases. I signed autographs in my visitation room Waiting for you the last time in made 502 That's a track called Daddy's Home, the title track from the new St. Vincent album, her seventh album. Annie Clark uh, out of Texas, the early uh, Baroque pop sound of 2007's Marry Me. That was her debut album. I remember her vividly uh, on tour as an opening act with Arcade Fire right around that time. She was doing gigs with Sufjan Stevens and the Polyphonic Spree as a guitar player, very well-respected guitar player before she even established herself as a solo artist. The big breakthrough came out in 2011 with Strange Mercy. 2012, Love the Giant, she collaborated with uh, David Byrne. She followed it with a self-titled album in 2014. In 2017, there was Mass Seduction, which paired her with Jack Antonoff. This is the start of a new phase in her career. Uh, Antonoff, of course, had been well known for working with Taylor Swift and Lord. Um, and with each album, it should be noted that uh, St. Vincent uh, tends to reimagine and reinvent herself. Uh, that was the latest reinvention. Now she's doing it yet again with Daddy's Home. The reference there is to her father, who had returned home from prison after serving 12 years for his involvement in a multi-million dollar stock manipulation scheme. This is her first overt reference to it uh, on her recorded work. Uh, where she's sort of assessing that period in her life. Uh, and this album has a very much of a 70s vibe. We're going to talk about it some more in a minute, uh, but let us play a track from it. It is called Down from St. Vincent's new one called Daddy's Home on Sound Opinions. You hit me one time. Imagine my surprise. When you hit me two times, you got yourself a fight. I was surprised. You were coming to cheap seats Thinking that my little scratch was like your big victory See, but I'll take you down uh. That is Down by St. Vincent from the new album Daddy's Home I can't cite a more annoying record that I've uh, uh, tried to understand and grapple with uh, in some time. Um, you know, I've had problems with St. Vincent in the past, the Disney-esque production. That's a slight understatement. Right? Yeah, but I've had problems with it. Look, <laughs> you, know, you know I hate musical theater. And we've had a musical theater take on the seedy underbelly in the 70s glam era of New York before. It was called Hedwig and the Angry Inch, okay? I don't need to revisit that. Uh, my problems with Annie Clark is this is all artifice. This is all superficial. Uh, even when she is singing about something like her father having done time in prison, which has to be a racking experience. You know, she she starts by telling us she was sitting in the waiting room at jail in, uh, for the visitor's hour, and she's signing autographs. You know, and then her conclusion is, you did time, well, I did time, too. Yeah, Well, I did 
Mostly, though, Greg, she sings about nothing. There's a lack of sincerity. There's there's just, uh, you know, an overproduction, overarrangement, and coupled with a lack of lyrical sincerity. I kept going back to two records we recently reviewed. Number one, if you love that sleazy, sexy, sultry, uh, 70s glam rock sound, the Art Deco record is a million times better. And if you are seeking true insight into a great singer-songwriter who's been through plenty of challenges but has upped her production value, you know, Girl in Red, the, the new Girl in Red album, which is a wonderful pop-orchestrated album. You know, St. Vincent, man, i just I just been in a miserable mood. Well, she seems to be in kind of a miserable mood on this record, too. I mean, it's a, it's a dark period in her life that she's looking at for the first time with some measure of transparency. Uh, referencing it very directly, the whole idea of like you know she never you know her dad wasn't really a dad for a, a long time because he was he was gone, uh, and now she's falling into that role. Like, what does it mean to be a caretaker? What does it mean to take care of someone the way a dad should? You know, uh, who's your daddy? You know, it's like, am I the daddy now? And and she's not ready for that job. What in the She's basically saying, I'm grappling with this, I'm struggling with that whole idea. So, on the surface, that's an interesting concept. I also like the idea that she changes personas, I like the idea that she changes things up. There's some very overt, maybe too overt references to Pink Floyd, Bowie, you know, Candy Darling gets an entire song. She, of course, is the character in at least two Lou Reed songs, in addition to being a real-life person. I am glad you mentioned that. This is a caricature of Lou Reed's caricature. You know, and she's playing with caricature, and she's playing with persona, and she's playing with artifice. All those things are on the table for her. It's a little frustrating because I, I think she's a great artist, and uh, this album did uh, disappoint me. It feels antiseptic. You know, the backing vocals on this track, you know, Donny Hathaway's Daughters. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They sound fantastic. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, they're like the ones, you know, she's in bed, you know, Ben's a dream queen as she's singing about, yeah. and they're throwing the curtains open, and here's the sunlight, kid. Come out here and, you know, look at this. It's just the mountain of the sun. Uh, to hear their records that but they sound like they're in a different room than her she's not she's not interacting with them in any way it's a very antiseptic sounding record so what i'm hearing here is someone who really understands that culture she's even released this record as an eight track the house is perfect, but she's not yeah. living there. I thought I mean, I she's thought, singing the right things, but I don't hear it in the music. I thought cheap irony went out with Billy Corgan. Yeah, it's a disappointing record. That is a little bit of a song called Namaste by Morchiba from its new album, Blackest Blue. I have been a Morchiba fan as long as there has been a Morchiba, 
Greg Cott. Um, the key trio being brothers Paul and Ross Godfrey and the incredible vocalist Sky Edwards, who made their debut with an EP all the way back in 1995, uh, became in the mid to late 80s uh, one of the toasts of that trip-hop sound coming out of the UK. Soulful, sexy, seductive, hypnotic, psychedelic, um, and now uh, they are back. Uh, th there have been ups and downs over the Morchiba uh, career many, many years. Uh, there was a point where Sky Edwards left for a time. There were other vocalists. Uh, now we are down to only one of the Godfrey brothers, and Sky Edwards is back. This is album number 10, and I think uh, I'm not tipping uh, my review. You, you have to ask yourself when we have uh, such a long career, uh, you know, does this group give us anything new? Not unlike uh, Corner Shop a while back. What is left to say uh, from this 90s era? Really inventive at the time. What are they doing now? Let's play a track, and we'll give our reviews. This is a song called Cut My Heart Out by Morchiba on Sound Opinions. That has cut my heart out from the new Morchiba album, Blackest Blue, 10 albums in to the career of this duo. Um, you know, Godfrey and Edwards are a great combo. Those early records were amazing. Uh, after listening to this record, Jim, I did a deep dive back into Morchiba because yeah. I, you know, those first few records were, were terrific. Big, big calm and fragments of freedom. Those Ooh. were those were some of my go-to records during that era. And, you know, the height of trip-hop. They were part of that trip-hop uh, uh, revolution in the mid-'90s. Portishead, Massive Attack, Tricky, Morchiba was right in the pocket of that, combining electronic music with hip-hop. And I was trying to figure out what's missing from this record because it didn't hit me the way those records did. Uh, there's a couple of moments on this record. Cut my heart out. That's probably one of the best moments yeah. on the record. Um, her voice floating over the top. It's almost like a space rock ballad. Mm -hmm. uh, I really dig that. Soul for Soul, in an instrumental. That guitar riff at the heart of it. Those stuttering horns. The emphatic beat. The flute floating through yeah. it. There's all sorts of hooks in that song. And that's what I'm really missing about this music. I feel like it's background music. I feel like it's easy listening music too often. Uh, it just sort of blends into the background. Maybe that was the point, but I didn't hear that on those early records that I loved so much. Those first three albums all had hooks galore on top of this beautiful atmospheric uh, thing that they were doing with the electronics uh, underneath it. That's not happening here on a consistent basis. Some of those tracks, I mean, Say It's Over, that piano ballad, Yeah. wow, that's like lounge stuff, man. Dawn of the day. Something now we can say it's over. 
I'm just yeah. kind of not not too impressed yeah. with where they're going with this movie. Well, Say It's Over uh, features this guy Brad Barr on vocals. It's a duet. The Edge of the World, the album ends with Duke Garward uh, on vocals uh, with uh, Sky Edwards. Why, when you have a voice as wonderful and distinctive as Sky Edwards, you'd have anybody else sing with her? I don't know. Those are two missteps. But I think on the whole, I like the album better than you. Uh, you know, Ross uh, Godfrey and Sky Edwards said they were setting out to find a way through the darkest of times, another pandemic album, mm-hmm. and emerge to the other side changed but intact. I do feel this is more Chiba changed uh, 20 years plus on from where they uh, uh, first uh, made an impact, uh, and mostly in good ways. I, You know, easy listening. Man, there is some <laughs> of the funkiest psychedelic guitar this side of Eddie Hazel on Maggot some. Brain some. By, by Funkadelic. You know, it's some great stuff. And I think that the, that the whole trip-hop sound was always supposed to be let me get lost in the groove and transported away. There are uh, two, possibly three, by my count, uh, songs about, and none of the duets, about the joys of getting lost in a, in a fog of uh, weed smoke. <laughs> Which is usually your thing, not mine. I liked it better than you. But look, kids, if you are intrigued by anything you just heard, start with 1998's Big Calm and uh, explore the rest of the Morchiba catalog from there. Couldn't have said it better myself, Jim. Uh, now that we've had our say on St. Vincent and Morchiba, it's your turn. Let us know your opinions in our Facebook group or on our Patreon community. Or leave us a message on our website at soundopinions.org. Coming up, we're going to review new records by Tony Allen and the Chills. Plus, we'll hear what song got Molly Sarlay of Mountain Man hooked on Sonics. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Him, that man, who are you? He about to pop like some gum, choo, choo, choo. Soda can pop, rising like the bubbles, too. They say you the realest, never lie, true, true, true. Tell them when I drop, better play this with the crew. Yeah, we got the- hey, we're back. And that is a little bit of the song Trey Magnifique from Tony Allen's final album, There Is No End. Before I say another word about Tony Allen, Mr. Cott, let me note that he is perhaps the greatest drummer ever, according to Brian Eno. <laughs> We paid tribute to Tony Allen upon the occasion of his death last year. He is a co-founder, along with the late Fela Kuti, of Afrobeat. No two ways about Mm. it. The combination of Western pop music, rock and roll, funk, and African rhythms. He was a giant for the time he was playing with Fela. He was the musical director, essentially, for Fela's band, 68 to 79. Forgotten then for many years, even though he was doing session work, and then resurrected in the new millennium in part by fans, super fans like Brian Eno, like Damon Albarn of Blur and Gorillaz. He was in that super group, The Good, The Bad, and The Queen, and he was working on an album at the time of his death in April 2020 from a heart attack, 79 years old, but playing mm-hmm. with a ferocity that any drummer 16 years old would envy. Let's play play a track from that album and we'll come back and we'll give our opinions on the record this is the song mau mau 
by Tony Allen from There Is No End. That is Mau Mau from Tony Allen's new album, There Is No End. Tony Allen, the great drummer. Um, you know, he's done uh, just about every kind of project you can imagine. He's collaborated with countless artists. He's worked with hip-hop artists in the past, yeah. but never an entire album uh, where he is supporting uh, rap MCs. Uh, and this is, this is that project. Um, you know, Jim, we were trying to decide what track to play, and I go, in the back of my mind, I'm going, all of them. All of them. There yeah. isn't a single... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I fell in love so hard with this record. The first time I, I listened to it, and I go, it's kind of subtle. I'm not hearing Tony. Yeah. Then I like actually listened to it, and I'm going, this guy's amazing. I'm glad to hear you what say that. What he's laying underneath these tracks is yeah. incredible. Yeah. The little subtle subtleties and innovations. You know, on that track, Mau Mau, the syncopations underneath that vocal by uh, Naito. Uh, what a catchy groove, just totally in sync with the vocal. Uh, Kunta Kinti, uh, w- the cool drum break in the middle of that oh, song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's sort of this rumbling backdrop that he kicks off with, and then he gets this little Clyde Stubblefield, give the drummer some yeah, break in the yeah. middle, and he goes, I just wish this could go on forever. Yeah. I mean, they could have turned that into a 30-minute loop, and I would have said, I can, I can groove to this all day long. This man has got, like, funk in his veins. I mean, yeah. it's just like, uh, you can't avoid it, and, and it doesn't, it's not showy. It's not about histrionics. It's not look at me. I don't think he's lifting his sticks higher than his belly button. Yeah, there, there's no playing. drum solo. Yeah. Nothing like that, no. But it's, it's a fascinating example of what a drummer can do. You know, you can speak to this better than I could. But I feel like he plays melodically in addition to rhythmically. Yeah. Yeah. I was glad to hear you say that because I was wondering as I listened and listened and listened, am I just loving this because I'm a drummer? (laughs) You know? But the polyrhythms, I forgot to say in his uh, resume, he also played with you, Masakela. Yeah. So there is this jazz thing happening as well. And, uh, you know, the the polyrhythmic, ever flowing, he, he is the sound of a river that occasionally runs over the waterfall and cascades into a giant calm pool at the bottom. It is just absolutely beautiful. And what I love about this, Greg, I did not know any of these European and African uh, rappers. And I had to dig deep to find out who they were. While they are in the spotlight vocally on all of these tracks, I think what Tony Allen is doing is saying Afrobeat, funk, rock and roll, you know, let's not forget Bo Diddley, uh, jazz, and the bebop greats, and my friend you, Masakela, it is all one. It is all one river, mm-hmm. and these rhythms and hip-hop itself have always been here. I just think it's a, a brilliant and beautiful album, and I'm glad that it was lovingly finished after he passed, because I can't imagine that it would have been any different if he had been alive the yeah. day he put it out. I think yeah. his mark was on it, and his estate put it out the way he wanted it. I know you can see this You don't 
had what you prompted Is this what you wanted? Is this what you wanted? Oh, scatterbrain! That's Scatterbrain, the title track from the new Chills album. I love saying that, the new Chills album. You're a Chills super fan. Yeah, they're a great band. Those of you who haven't heard of them, I'm sure a lot of people have not. We're going to hopefully introduce you to a great band. The Dunedin Sound, out of New Zealand in the 80s. That was a thing, indie pop music from this college town in southern New Zealand. It spawned countless bands, uh, the Flying Nun label, Bands like The Clean, The Bats, Dead Sea, Straight Jacket Fits, Tall Dwarves, Verlaines, and then The Chills. The Chills at the top of the list. Martin Phillips, one of the great songwriters, perhaps the greatest songwriter in that New Zealand scene, uh, revered far and wide as, as one of the great voices of independent music in the 80s and onward. To my mind, there was a number of great singles and, and uh, great albums, but uh, the masterpiece for my ears is Submarine Bells in 1990. And then after Sunburnt in 1996, Phillips uh, had some personal issues that uh, basically forced him out of the music business and out of record making for a number of years, almost two decades. He was slowed by um, drug addiction and then hepatitis C, uh, recovered, reconstituted the chills for an EP in 2004, uh, and then a full-fledged album in 2015, Silver Bullets, that in many ways picked up right where they left off. Uh, there was a sense of, hey, he's renewed, he's back. Now we're starting to see a regular pattern of releases, and now we have Scatterbrain from Martin Phillips and the new, new incarnation of The Chills. We're going to review it here in a second, but let's play Monolith, the lead-off track from this new Chills album on Sound Opinions. We have gathered up wisdom, whatever's at hand. We have weathered the ages, Still we stand Give me the power of ancient stones on the monolith Give me the power of ancient stones That is Monolith by The Chills from their new album. A shout-out to uh, our 11,000 listeners in New Zealand, Mr. Cott. I am not quite the super, super-duper fan of The Chills that you are, but I have followed their career very closely through the years. In fact, I loaned them an amplifier when they first came to America and played at <laughs> Maxwell's. There's bragging rights. I love Monolith. What a great song. This might be my song of the year so far. Very prog. Uh, it, well, it is very prog, and also it is about the power of the stones, my friend. Yeah. The Druids, Stonehenge. Right? Mm. It's suddenly a Julian Cope song. And I did not know before that Phillips was, you know, in this magical M-A-G-I-C-K mind frame. Magical, mystical, mm. pagan. Right. Uh, we have a song called, you know, You're Immortal. We have a song called Little Alien. You know, I do love the druid pagan stuff. I think this is a brilliant pop album. And we've said this before, of all the genres that can sustain a 30, 40-year uh, career, in the power pop 
realm as long as you still write memorable hooks mm. and great arrangements and interesting lyrics you know you're ageless right it never gets old uh i would say monolith is as good a song as anything he's written before uh worlds within worlds i put up uh in that category too there's one real stinker though caught in my eye you know, caught in my eyes, like, I'm not crying. I just got something <laughs> stuck in my eye. And wow, I, it, it is so bad, I was embarrassed every time I listened. Caught in my eye. I won't cry. But, you know, that's what your own playlist is for. You just take that out. Yeah, I shouldn't be surprised, but you're always kind of holding your breath when one of your heroes uh, puts out a new album later on in their career. You know, you yeah. wonder, when are they going to jump the shark, as they say? And, you know, I... Happy to report that the Chills and Martin Phillips are nowhere close to doing that. Uh, Yet again, they've uh, made a record that I think is very listenable, different in some ways. I mean, they have been shifting towards a more produced sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is certainly a great example of that. This is among the most produced records they've ever made in terms of just the sumptuousness of the arrangements, the way they're using the keyboards, and especially the strings. They've got a full-time string player in the band now. They are using these elements, these orchestral elements, elements to, to make a version of orchestral pop. This is not the sparse indie rock band of the 80s anymore, where it was yeah. kind of that skeletal guitar playing of Martin being the, the driving force on many of their tunes. So once you get past that hurdle, expecting them to be like it's 1985 again, uh, which it isn't, they have evolved into a more ambitious band in terms of arrangement. But as you said, those three-minute pop gems are still there yeah the hooks are there the melodies are there i was kidding you about monolith you know you liking that song because it's a a little prog and just the way the instrumentation is on that record you could hear it as an early 70s kind of thing but not in a bad way at all he'll pop in a song like little alien near the end of the record you go god that's a catchy little tune you know you can't get it out of your head so phillips is still playing with big concepts mortality you know the afterlife you know, the cosmos, you know, what's mm-hmm. out there that we don't know about yet. And at the same time, bringing this essence of him as a brilliant um, melodist in that three, four minute format uh, to the four once again. So a great record from the chills yet again. And it all comes down to you. You know that it does well. lightning strikes, maybe once. That is a little bit of Molly Sarlay's cover of Fleetwood Mac's Gypsy. Molly is a solo artist, but uh, probably better known as a member of the Harmony vocal group Mountain Man. She recently talked with our producer Andrew Gill for our series Hooked on Sonics about the song that led her to become a professional musician. My name is Molly Sarlay, and my musical project is under my own name. I'm also in a band called Mountain Man. My music is ethereal, folk, pop, rock, we'll say. And the song that got me hooked on Sonics is Celine Dion's All Coming Back to Me Now. To me, it's all coming back, it's all coming back to me. 
When I was about four years old, I had a little maroon and yellow Walkman, and my mother gave me the Celine Dion tape, and I would spend about four hours every day bouncing back between my bed and my sister's bed in our room, listening to that tape and singing along. I remember her telling me things like, if you don't stop singing, I will hit you. (laughs) So I think she thought, I don't want to hear Molly singing these songs anymore because it's all I hear all day long. I think what grabbed me about that song and about a lot of Celine Dion's music is how purely and unabashedly expressive her voice is emotionally. She's like, there are nights that were so cold and there were flashes. It's like she's like existing in a storm. (laughs) It's a really big song. You feel like they're, you're watching a lightning storm when you're listening to it, or I do. She's like watching herself remember things. I think it made me feel like there was something to reach for, like there was something for me to grow into. I've always been like a really emotional human being and finding refuge in music as like a safe place or a structure in which big emotions can be explored made me feel safe and I think Celine Dion's music did that for me. It was so long ago I mean, my love for Celine Dion continued throughout my life, and I sang Celine Dion at my sixth grade graduation. And we sang a song, I can't remember, but it's not a great graduation song. It's basically the song she wrote for her husband when he was struggling with cancer. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. And that's the way it is. That was Molly Sarley talking about how Celine Dion's performance of It's All Coming Back to Me Now inspired her to pursue music. I would be remiss if I did not mention that song was written by the great Jim Steinman, who we lost in April at the age of 73, the auteur, Mr. Cott, behind Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf. Coming up, we talk with researcher Ron Knox about his bold suggestion to fix the music industry. That's next on Sound Opinions. And we're back. As we've said a few times on this show, the past year has been one of the most challenging ever for the music industry. Our next guest, Ron Knox, proposed a bold solution in an article published by Wire in March titled, Big Music Needs to be Broken Up to Save the Industry. Why don't you just tell us what you really think, Ron? I love Uh, it. In that article, he looks at the big players in the music industry through the lens of the antitrust research he does for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. 
We want to talk to Ron Knox now about that incredible article. Ron, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, thanks so much for having me here, guys. Appreciate it. A really powerful piece. I mean, you made uh, many points that Greg and I have been talking about ad infinitum for 15 years, but I don't know if I've ever read a better concentrated argument that big music, as you call it, you know, both the three remaining major labels and the new infrastructure of streaming and Live Nation, which has come to be the monopolistic uh, entity dominating uh, the concert scene, you say it flat out, they need to be broken up. These are monopolies. Uh, Let's get antitrust involved. It was a really cogent and moving argument. But let me start by being devil's advocate. What makes you think it would ever work? Look, it's a good question. Uh, You know, I don't have to tell you guys that the music business at the moment is this kind of like ecosystem of monopoly power where bigness begets bigness. It all happens largely at the expense of all of these like independent businesses that make up the vast middle class of the industry, right? That's indie bands, labels, small venues, and so on. The nice thing about what we've seen over the last I'd say like five or so years in the world of antitrust and anti-monopoly regulation is that there's this newfound interest in the plight of all of those kinds of parties that have to interact with monopoly power on a daily basis. So the plight of workers, which in my mind that, you know, those are musicians in this industry, you know, the plight of suppliers, of vendors and so on. It's taken this kind of front seat in the conversation about what our antitrust laws are supposed to do. If you apply that to the music industry, what you end up with is this kind of sea change in how we think about the structure of our industries and our economy overall. So in the same way that you see the Justice Department suing Google, the same way that you see the Federal Trade Commission suing to break up Facebook because of its Instagram and WhatsApp acquisitions, you could see the exact same thing happening in the music industry where you have these really problematic concentrations of corporate power, which I can talk more about. I want to make a point here before we move on because consolidation of conglomerates is, is the American way. It is. I, I wrote a book about this in, in 2009, Ripped, about the whole idea of the digital thing was supposed to f- level out the playing field. And you could already see, okay, all these big, big record companies and radio conglomerates that were dominating the industry for basically the last half of the 20th century were going away. But new boss, same as the old boss, you're dealing with this now in your piece, uh, Ron, the, the whole idea that Google, Spotify, etc. have become what Warner and, and Universal were back then. You know, uh, we're seeing the third act of the same play over and over again. And I think Jim's point is this has been a trend for so long now. And there's always somebody, there's always the gadflies in Congress saying, you know, it's not going to happen. We're going we're gonna to take this down. At the end of the day, there is so much money behind keeping these corporations together. The fact that these things are allowed to happen, I think the people who in power think this is the way to do business. This is how we do business in America. It's un-American to break this up. Mm. I don't even know how you fight that, you know? I, look, I want to push back a little bit because I definitely understand that, you know, that vantage point. And I think for your average person, like citizen on the street, they would probably think, yeah, that's right. 
we have really big companies and they do what they want and our politicians are beholden to them and that's the way the system works. But look, I got to stress, this is a relatively recent invention of the American political economy. This is not the history of America. The history of America, the history of industrial America since the turn of the 20th century um, is really a history of lawmakers, citizens, workers, farmers, shopkeepers really coming together and figuring out ways to put the necessary regulatory structure in place so that we don't have corporate dominance and so that we preserve our democratic rights, you know, our ability to make a fair sale in an open marketplace, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. We did it for a long, long, long time in this country, right? Basically from the turn of the 20th century, through the New Deal, through the 50s, 60s, things started to change in the 70s. And then with the Reagan administration in the 80s, you saw a sea change. And then that became canonical. That became the standard. And now people think that we can't change from that. But it's simple enough to go back and to re-embrace our vibrant anti-monopoly history. And that's what we need to do. Another difference that Greg may be missing, Ron, is you couch this all as the COVID shutdown of everywhere uh, has brought this into uh, highlight because, you know, that middle class, what you call the middle class of musicians, and really it's the 99% versus the 1% of your, uh, you know, Gagas and Beyonce's up top. Everybody else has needed the live performance income. Maybe Gaga makes money from Spotify, but, you know, as someone like uh, Damon Krakowski of Galaxy 500 has made blatantly clear they can get uh, tens of thousands of streams and make not a penny. More than ever, without those bands able to play the small 150-capacity clubs and make their living that way has put into a new spotlight how wrong it is for people to be enjoying all the music they want via streaming and only the tiniest fraction of musicians to get paid. And then on the concert tip... If those 150 clubs don't exist anymore because they couldn't survive this pandemic, uh, we have literally destroyed that that 99% middle class. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the thing that all of this monopoly power in the industry has made clear is that the vast majority of working musicians, of independent labels, of venues, they're kind of teetering on this precarious edge where if one thing goes wrong, and one thing certainly did go wrong, and obviously it was a very big thing over the last year with COVID, but if this thing goes wrong, there's no sustainability, there's no resilience built into the system where people can get by, people can make a living, and everything's going to be okay. When you talk about streaming, we're talking about regular platform monopoly issues, problems. It's the same thing that you see with Amazon. Any industry that relies on a platform for revenue and for distribution is going to run into these issues. And that's exactly what happened with the music industry. You know, Spotify and YouTube, those are the two really big powers in the streaming world, right? Spotify is the dominant one for subscription streaming, 190 million subscribers the last time I checked. And YouTube is the real dominant player in ad-based streaming and Mm -hmm. and it can tap into this massive user base of its parent company google right artists and labels are relying on these services to deliver their music to the masses and it creates this kind of finite pie right every stream that happens is just a cash transaction more or less between a user between a subscriber someone who's listening and between the artist you know and the platform and there's only so many streams to go around People only listen to music for so many hours out of the day. 
And so when you have this kind of really concentrated economic power, you have the major labels taking up this vast majority of streams, both with new music and, you know, you see what happened with, you know, with Fleetwood Mac and with rumors over the summer when that blew up because of this really popular TikTok. It didn't, Warner Brothers didn't pay any money to remake or remaster or re, you know, market rumors and Fleetwood Mac. It just blew up and it funneled all this money to the major labels. And then suddenly there's just less for everybody else, which is not the same in any other economy or, you know, the live music economy, which, which unfortunately because of COVID, you know, had to be put on hold. So, and as you're pointing out too, though, the system that these streaming platforms have created is looking more and more like traditional radio. I mean, the payola system that is going up now on Spotify, which I thought was an excellent point. Uh, tell us about those. I call it payola in the article because everybody that I talk to for the article calls it payola. It's not legally payola because payola as a legal definition is reserved to the radio airwaves. But Spotify basically has two different programs that they're using. One uh, is called Marquee. It's pretty obvious, it's pretty transparent, but still, if you have the money, you can pay Spotify. And when users open up the app, it'll blast them with a big ad that says, whoever, Lady Gaga has a new album out, click here to stream it. And then they get that click and they get that stream. And then that money goes to the major labels and goes to Lady Gaga, not to somebody else. It's kind of payola. It's a little bit transparent. The one that's not transparent um, is uh, a new service called Discovery Mode on Spotify. And it's where... Uh, an artist or a label, whoever owns the rights to music, can agree in a contract with Spotify to say, okay, I as the rights holder, I'm going to take a lower royalty rate in exchange for Spotify clandestinely placing this song that I want to take a lower rate on into the radio algorithm of Spotify, which accounts for a significant portion of streams on, on the site. The radio algorithm is when, let's say you want to listen to one song or you want to listen to one album, you put that album on, you go back to work, you space out, and then there's this kind of automatic playlist that happens after that. That's the radio algorithm. Which we are meant to think is Spotify uh, saying, oh, you loved Galaxy 500. Now let me give you a little Velvet Underground, a little Feelies, right. a little whatever, right? But it ain't yes. under this new model. Yes, exactly right. It's meant to be organic. It's meant to feel like these are things that um, are being pushed to you because you're going to like them because Spotify has the data and they know you. And it turns out that under this new program, that might not always be the case. What might be the case is that essentially an artist agreed to take a lower cut, which increases Spotify's revenue per stream, right, in exchange for this, for this better placement in the algorithm. And it's entirely clandestine. I asked Spotify about this. I said, you know, can you let your listeners know that this is, that, you know, that this has happened? And Spotify said, ah, we don't know, because it's really hard to, hard to parse out whether it's because of this lower payment or whether it's because they actually are going <laughs> to like the song. How, who's to know? What is your insight into uh, the number of musicians that actually see more than, let's say, $1,000? The group led by Damon Kurkowski and others who are, are trying to form an independent musicians union are saying, pay us a crummy penny a stream. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, the bottom line number that I thought was really, really fascinating, an average of like seven artists. So we're talking about like big global phenomenon artists. We're talking about 
you know, The Weeknd and Beyonce and so on. They can make as much as a half a million dollars a year on Spotify. That's big money, right? That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other 99% of artists on Spotify, literally kind of everybody else, make an mm-hmm. average of $25 a year from Spotify. <laughs> okay? That's, you know, that's incredible. Right. And right. it's also, I think the two key questions, Ron, are artists want to be paid. Well, first of all, they want to be heard. They want to have an equal chance Maybe not with Beyonce, but with at least give me a chance. And then they want to be paid a fair wage, which is not a big ask. You know, I'd like to get, you know, $70,000 a year for working really hard at my craft. Well, you listen to my song. Yeah. Uh, is that not worth a penny? Right. 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 So my, my question is, this has been an ask for decades in the music industry. Is it achievable to make those two things happen within, say, the next five to ten years? I don't know if it's possible. I don't know. But I know that we have to try. That's what I do know. As I said in the story, I think at this point it requires um, some real government intervention, probably on a couple of different levels. So one I think is antitrust enforcement. And I think it is really, really significant as a way to deconcentrate industries across the economy, including the music industry. You know, you look at YouTube, right? I mean, would there be some real tangible benefit if you separated YouTube from its massive, extraordinarily wealthy and extraordinarily data-rich parent company, Google, yeah, you probably would end up with some real benefits and you would end up with some real competition. You know, as you guys probably know, YouTube is so big and it wields this kind of copyright power over bands, it tends to set the price floor for per stream royalties. So if you bring that floor up, you're going to help everybody. So that's kind of the antitrust bit of it. The part that I'm not expert in, but that I think would probably be a good idea is to set some regulation up and say, here is your new floor. Here is the absolute bottom kind of level as far as what royalties you have to pay rights holders per stream. And you know, if you want to negotiate up from this really decent floor, maybe it's a penny a stream, great. You can negotiate up from there, and that's where the price competition can come in. But I think setting that floor would level the playing field and so on. Don't you think it's extraordinary that here we are, depending on what we set as the date for when Al Gore invented the Internet, 25 or 30 years on, and and we have not dealt with the question of copyright and recompense for streamed music? Well, it, look, when you say that the market is going to dictate these rates, you know, and it is what it is, and then you have a market filled with monopoly power, filled with serious corporate power, they can push those rates down just in the same way that the big corporations can push down wages for your average workers. Then you end up with an unfair system and you end up with a system that's not sustainable for your average musician or your average label. Um, and it's not equitable at all. It hasn't always been this way. We've been, right. you know, we have been willing, we as in our democratically elected uh, like officials and lawmakers and, you know, regulatory agencies and so on have been willing to step in and say, this isn't working. It's not working for the vast majority of the participants in this market. We got to fix it. You know, and that's the kind of thing that needs to happen. I think, honestly, the time is right for it. What about on the concert tip? Um, You know, I feel like I've spent my entire career as a music journalist charting the rise of of Live Nation. You know, Clear Channel initially, and then Live Nation, and then that merger with Ticketmaster in the early years of the Obama administration. I mean, the most reviled uh, entity in the history of the music industry by every live music patron, 
right? It's unbelievable to me as an observer. And I've been writing about music for a long time. I've been writing about antitrust for, for, for a long time. And at the time that these mergers happened, right, the Ticketmaster Live Nation merger, you know, the idea about, like behind allowing these mergers to happen was that it was going to have either a positive effect on short-term prices, like prices to customers, yeah. that is, that yeah. the prices would go down, or it was going to be benign, no harm, no foul, you let them get together, and it's all good. And then, and that's like the philosophy behind allowing it to happen. Yeah. Then it happens. Yeah. Now Never. we have time. Yeah. Never. And like, yeah. look at what's actually <laughs> happened, right? Like fees are yeah. just wildly like skyrocketing with no, there's no checks. There's no checks on that. There's no, it's just straight yeah. monopoly profits right into yeah, the pockets. Ron, look, until the consumers really revolt. No. Well, yes, but that's, no, no, no. But wall. that's why mm. it's even worse. Because you're abusing people who love the stuff so much that they will suck it up, they'll pay yeah, whatever, right. and they'll go to see the gigs, and they'll, they'll listen to the music, because this stuff is ingrained in our culture, and our very yeah, nature, yeah. and they're yeah. just willing to do it, even if it's abusive, and even if it like, breaks the bank for some folks, they'll go do it. So you want, you want our, our corporations to become uh, civic curators now. What, what, the, what are you smoking, Ron? Come on. <laughs> Citizens. I don't. I want our government, I want our lawmakers, and I want our regulatory agencies to pass good laws and enforce those laws. That's what I want. Their, and that's what's do missing from this kid. Do your words. job. Exactly. That's what's missing. <laughs> All right, we're going to check back with you, Ron, down the line. I do admire your work, and thank you for being uh, so generous. No problem. I love it, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Take care. See ya. That is what Ron Knox thinks would fix the music industry. But what do you think? Should big music be broken up? Share your thoughts in our Facebook group or leave us a voice message on our website. Mr. Cott, uh, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, we're going to bring back uh, Meryl Garbus, one of our favorite guests ever on Sound Opinions and her group Tune Yard. She's going to give us an in-depth interview about her latest album. Yay, Meryl! For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Soul Delgadillo. Our social media person is Katie Cott.